Let's commend our, the remaining uh, uh, portion of our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we pray that you would help us, uh, even as many of us may be tired, uh, may be hungry even, and uh, easily distracted. Uh, Lord, help us to um, come to the end of this uh, conference and this last lecture and still be able to, to profit from uh, the things that we're hearing even as we've been uh, instructed with regard to um, pastoral counseling as we care for the souls of, of uh, men and women. Uh, and here we think now about the fourfold state of, of man and um, the different states of man, uh, whether it be in the state of sin and depravity or, or in the, sin, uh, the, the state of grace, uh, the different states in which we might pastor them. Lord, help us to bring all these things together in the end uh, that it might help us even in our own pastoral ministries. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so I've titled this uh, last lecture, Free Will in the Fourfold State of Man, uh, using something of Thomas Boston's uh, title of his work. So, free will in the fourfold state of man. Uh, so far, we've considered the substance uh, of the introductory paragraph in chapter 9 of our confession, which, as I said, speaks to the essential nature of free choice, irrespective of which state of man is under consideration. Uh, now, we uh, intend to survey the, the, and I say survey, the the substance of paragraphs two through five, wherein we walk through, or, or the confession walks us through each of the four moral states in which man may be found. And so in his state of innocence, state of sin, and of grace, and of glory, respectively. And in each, our understanding of man's freedom needs to be, let's say it needs to be qualified though not in such a way that alters the essential nature of his power of choice, but nevertheless accidentally circumscribes the will's freedom relative to its particular moral disposition. So as we begin this, there are a few uh, clarifications that we need to lay down at the outset. <clears throat> First, our focus here is not principally speaking the soteriological concerns or concerns about salvation from which much of the free will debate has historically arose. Neither uh, is, is this an ex intended to be an exercise in polemics. In the second place, although we have said that there is a relative indifference in the will, relative indifference in the will, in that it is not determined by a necessity of nature, but is free to will, not will or will otherwise, we're now adding a clarification. Namely, that the will is never entirely neutral or absolutely indifferent, as the Armenians presuppose, but is always morally inclined and disposed in the direction of either sin or holiness, as we'll come to see. And it needs to be affirmed at the outset that contrary to the uh, common Arminian presupposition, there is, this in no way destroys the will's essential power of free choice. 
In other words, even though the moral disposition of the will shapes its desires and therefore the moral, you could say the moral horizon of its choices, it does not thereby necessitate uh, necessitate um, necessitated or determinate to any one particular thing, or neither does it take away its ability at any given moment, again, to will, not will, or will otherwise than it actually has. And this gives rise to a distinction, a distinction uh, that Turretin uh, refers to as the will's essential freedom uh, as distinct from its accidental freedom. Um, he's using philosophical terms there, but maybe I could put it otherwise. He's speaking here, or he has in mind here, the being, well-being distinction, right? The, you've heard that, the being and well-being distinction. We often use this distinction when we, when we speak about the church. That, so we may speak of those things which belong to the being or the essence of the church, right? That which makes it what it is and without which it wouldn't be a church. But we may also speak of those things which belong to the well-being of the church, such as officers, right? Things, things which the church needs. It needs not for its being, for its existence as the church, but it needs for its well-being in order to be well-ordered unto the end for which it exists. Turton notes that there is a freedom that, that belongs to the being and to the essence of man as a rational creature. It's what we've been talking about, the power of choice that, as we've said, is free from both the necessity of coercion and of the necessity of nature and is open to alternatives. And so that is a, a metaphysical freedom which man cannot lose without ceasing to be man, without ceasing to be a rational soul. But there is also an accidental freedom that belongs to its well-being or to the well-being of man. Here we're talking about a, a moral freedom belonging to a well-ordered soul that is not only free from sin, but especially free for the end for which man exists, for which he has been. And Turretin calls this an accidental freedom because this particular moral disposition of the will does not belong to the essence, he says, the essence of free will itself, whereby it possesses the power of choice itself, but only to its, to its well-being whereby it is disposed to exercise its power of choice well. In this way, man as a rational creature always possesses the essential power of free choice, whether it be well disposed or well ordered or not. But as a moral creature, man's will may be considered more or less free depending upon its moral disposition. And so may be comparatively considered in each of the four right, moral states in which man may be found. So the question that we're dealing with here has to do with this accidental freedom, this 
moral freedom, the different moral dispositions and habits that characterize the will of man and therefore help to shape the free choice of man in each of the four moral states of man. Okay, thirdly, uh, uh, by way of clarification, when we speak of the moral disposition of the soul or of, of the will in particular, right, it's corruption and sin, renewal and grace, perfection and glory, we have in mind what older theology referred to as habits, the moral virtues and vices, and the different ways they morally, the virtues and vices morally habituate or habitually incline the soul in all of its acts and operations. A habit exists when a certain disposition of the soul becomes second nature. More precisely, habits relate to the settled moral disposition of the soul, right? It's, it's particular moral propensity whereby the quality of its operations may be said to be either well-disposed or ill-disposed. It may be said to be either perfected or corrupted. And so habits can be good or they can be bad. They can be virtuous or they can be vicious. As we've seen, the soul has certain essential faculties or powers of operation, especially the intellect and the will. And both intellect and will are capable of being either perfected or corrupted in their mode of operation. Whereas a virtuous habit morally perfects the will, gives it strength of character, we could say, inclines it rightly uh, to, to, to rightly order its affections according to right reason, and thereby perfects its freedom to choose the good, a vicious habit morally corrupts the will. Und and we could say the same of the intellect, but, but here the focus is on the will. Morally corrupts the will, undermines its own perfection, disorders its affections, inclines it to sin, and thereby self-imposes certain constraints upon its own freedom. And so as it regards the four possible states of man in innocence and in sin and grace and in glory, we may distinguish four moral habitudes, habits or original righteousness in innocence, original sin, depravity in the state of sin, regeneration in the state of grace, and glorification, respectively, in the state of glory. Whereby in each state, the will of man possesses a different dispositional relationship and a different moral spontaneity towards sin and holiness, respectively. Fourthly, so this brings us to a fourth distinction and a final remark by way of clarification or by way of introduction. <clears throat> and that is simply to highlight a fourfold distinction, a distinction introduced by Augustine that has made it way, its way into our confession as well. As we just said, the will of man possesses a different habitual or 
dispositional relationship to sin and holiness in each of the four states in which he, he may be considered. So before the fall, in his state of innocence, man was able to sin. I won't give it in all the Latin, but, but able to sin and able not to sin, right? As our confession speaks, had the power to do what is good and pleasing to God and was also able to fall away from it, mutable. After the fall, man is thrust into a state of sin such that he is not only still able to sin, but is now so confirmed in sin that he is not able not to sin. In the state of grace, man is not only still able to sin, but is now confirmed in grace so that he is once more able not to sin. And in glory, not only will he continue to possess the ability not to sin, he will so, be so, so perfectly confirmed in glory that he will no longer be able to sin, but will be, as our confession says, perfectly and immutably free to good alone. So with these things in mind, consider with me the will and its particular moral dispositional relationship to sin and holiness in each of the four states of man. Recognizing that not only does time here limit how much we can say uh, on the remaining four paragraphs of our confession, um, but I'd also like at the end here to leave time for, for two practical uh, uses drawn from the things that we have had occasion to, to say throughout the conference. Okay, so the dispositions or the disposition of the will in the state of innocence, in the state of man's integrity. And it is, it is critical that we begin with the case of our first parents before the fall because it begins a story with man at a crossroad with sin and depravity in one direction and grace and glory in the other. With the corruption of our will in one direction and the perfection of our will in the other. And we need to understand where free will began before we can understand how it is corrupted and how it is subsequently restored and perfected by grace. You could say that um, Adam and Eve are like our control group. They're, they're the control group against whom the other states of man may be compared, relative, on the one hand, to the corruption of man's first institution and integrity, and to its restoration and perfection, on the other hand. So Adam had the power not to sin and the power to sin. The freedom and power to will and able to do what was good and well-pleasing to God, but was also mutable so that he might fall from it, as our confession says, chapter 9, paragraph 2. The context here in the garden is the covenant of works, right? Adam is and was at a crossroad, eat or not eat the forbidden fruit. But it's important to understand that 
contrary to the Armenian solution to why he chose to, a to eat, our first parents were not morally indifferent. While there are such things as matters of indifference, right? The, the will itself is never absolutely indifferent towards sin and holiness. And this reminds us that Adam was created not indifferent. He was created rather in a state of original righteousness, whereby he was positively disposed toward holiness and in, a, and, and, and in no way disposed toward sin. Let's take a step back and, and think for a moment more concretely what we are referring to when we say, when we speak of original righteousness, that our first parents were created in original righteousness. In the first place, it's important here that we distinguish between original righteousness and actual righteousness. Actual righteousness refers to righteous and holy acts of the will, whereas original righteousness refers to the habitual righteousness and holy disposition of the will from which those acts may be said to originate. And here's what we need to understand. Our first parents were created habitually righteous so as to possess the power and propensity to do what is well-pleasing to God, as our confession says. But they were not yet confirmed in actual righteousness so that theirs was a state of probation that hinged upon them actually choosing righteously. Thomas Boston notes, there is a twofold conformity required of man, a conformity of the powers of his soul to the law, which you may call habitual righteousness, and a conformity of all his actions to it, which is actual righteousness. Now, God made man habitually righteous. Man was to make himself actually righteous. The sum of what I have said is that the righteousness wherein man was created was the conformity of all the faculties and powers of his soul to the moral law. This is what we call original righteousness, with which man was originally endued. Our confession says that he was created mutable. He was in a state of probation in order to test his faith and love. He was created habitually righteous, but was not yet confirmed one way or another until he actually made his choice between good and evil. And for Adam merited that just reward. By way of covenant, of course. In the second place, it's important that we understand that the original or habitual righteousness of our first parents consisted of both natural and supernatural virtues. According to their natural institution, their soul was perfectly ordered. 
the lower appetites, right, ordered to the higher, the sensible to the rational, and even the natural to the supernatural. Whereas the natural virtues order the soul in relation to ourselves, to the world, to the natural order, and to our neighbor. In other words, the natural order of things, ordered to the natural order of things, as the means to happiness, but not as to happiness itself. At the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and love, order the soul in relation to the knowledge and the love of God, in other words, to the supernatural order as the actual end of man's happiness. The natural virtues, both intellectual and moral, those moral virtues pertaining to the will, that is, predisposed and enabled our first parents to live a well-ordered life in relation to the natural, to the created order, to love their neighbor as, their, as themselves. Whereas the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and love, predisposed and enabled them to order all things, themselves and their neighbor included, in relation to the supernaturally revealed knowledge and love of God, so as to use and enjoy all things, all things below, even for the sake of God as their chief end. And this was the point of the particular command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to test their faith and their love. It was a command that could, could not have been known otherwise except by faith, by the positive, the divine revelation of God. Because there was nothing about the tree or the nature of the tree or its fruit that would have naturally led them to conclude that it was forbidden. It was pleasing to the eyes, right? Their, their obedience then would rest solely upon God's revealed will alone, accepted by faith alone. And it was precisely there that it would be known whether they would order their knowledge and love of those things within the natural order to their knowledge and love of God, the supernatural order. And so Adam, Adam was at a crossroad. He possessed habitual righteousness but was not yet confirmed in actual righteousness. The outcome, of course, would be determined by this test. He was naturally and supernaturally inclined and habitually predisposed, you could say, to holy obedience. But he possessed the potency, the power, to choose otherwise. In this case, sin or holiness. As John Gerardu remarks, he says, Adam was endowed with grace sufficient for him, but was, un, but was under obligation to settle his character by the free elections of his will. And we all know what he freely chose. He chose to eat of the forbidden fruit because it appealed to his will under some aspect of goodness. It was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, we're told. <clears throat> but he chose it, nevertheless, as an end in and of itself. 
rather than as a means considered in relation to God, God who had forbidden it. And this made it sin. For whatever is not of faith is sin, with God as its end is therefore sin. Two quick implications emerge from this, these considerations. First, the Arminian notion that freedom consists of an absolute moral indifference is a farce. Not even our first parents were morally indifferent, but were positively and habitually inclined to holiness rather than to sin. <clears throat> Second, any notion of absolute moral determination that the will is absolutely determined by its given moral spontaneity is I think equally refuted here. The fact is that Adam sinned unnecessarily and avoidably. He sinned in opposition to his habitual nature and moral spontaneity, which I think shows us two things. First, it shows us that our first parents possessed a simultaneity of power to will, not will, and even will contrary to what he actually willed. Secondly, that the will is not absolutely bound to act according to its own moral habit, especially when the will is not yet fully confirmed in act and is simultaneously assaulted with external temptations as in the case of our first parents. There's a little bit of that that needs to be qualified and I'll, I'll try to do that moving forward. <clears throat> so secondly, consider with me the disposition of the will in the state of sin or of depravity. So how did the fall affect man's free will? Well, the catechism answer to this is this, that our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So no longer does man possess the original righteousness, but has now inherited original sin, which is that moral habitude of intellect and will from which actual acts of sin originate. Right, we... How's it go? We, we, we sin because we're sinners, not simply sinners because we sin, right? So actual acts of sin flow out of the habitual state of original sin, sinful state of man's soul. <clears throat> the power of free choice was not lost so much as it was corrupted. And three things are to be noted in this regard. So first, first, man was stripped of the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and love, so that fallen man is now no longer inclined, and in fact, indeed, no longer able, is unable, insofar as the virtues 
of faith, hope, and love cannot be naturally acquired, but is no longer inclined or able to order his knowledge and love or his use and enjoyment of those things within the natural order to God as his chief end. He is effectively cut off from the supernatural order of things. It is as Turretin says, he can neither know any saving truth nor do any spiritually good thing. And this leaves man disposed to pursue created things as an end in themselves, which is what? It's idolatry. Secondly, man was stripped of his natural virtues as well, so that fallen man is no longer even disposed to love his neighbor as himself, but is now curved inward upon himself and is predisposed to use and enjoy all things for the sake of himself. Thirdly, the curse of sin has introduced total disorder into man's body-soul relation so that the lower appetites now rise up against the higher appetites, lusts and passions rise up against reason and all manner of disordered affections. A conclusion uh, drawn from these things is that the depraved will has now been confirmed in sin and in unrighteousness, tending even, as Paul says, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and most especially the truth of God. It helps us to remember that every truly righteous and holy act has faith in God as its source and love for God as its end. And therefore, precisely because the unregenerate will possesses neither the grace of faith nor the grace of love or of charity, it can no longer perform any truly righteous and holy or spiritually good act. But as the scripture says, is a slave to sin. In fact, We can even say that the unregenerate will is determined to sin alone. It cannot not sin, for whatever is not of faith is sin. But this does not mean that the unregenerate are incapable of doing any good whatsoever. The natural man may even at times perform natural acts that are objectively good, such as civil righteousness, that is in some measure ordered to the love of one's neighbor. But the natural man no longer has the spiritual ability to do holy acts, acts that are ordered by faith to the love of God. Because holy acts presuppose a holy principle, which is wholly lost in the fall and cannot be naturally reacquired, only by grace. And this suggests two larger implications. First, man's freedom is morally wounded and circumscribed. We can say dead, but our tradition puts it this way as well. Man's freedom is morally wounded and circumscribed such that every act that comes forth from the unregenerate will, even so-called good acts on, within the natural order of things, we could say, 
are ultimately acts of sin and of unrighteousness. Because again, they do not proceed, even the best of them do not proceed from faith or with respect to a love for God, nor can they. Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The second implication follows from the first that there are rather large soteriological implications from the fact that fallen man lacks the supernatural grace of faith and and of love apart from which he is dead toward God and morally incapable in and of himself of knowing any saving truth or choosing and doing any spiritual good which is the point highlighted in our confession, that natural man has lost all ability to will any spiritual good accompanying salvation, a point that is not adequately considered by those who hold an Arminian viewpoint. Turton concludes, the orthodox although maintaining that the free will of man always remains as to essentials, also confess that no power to do spiritual good survives in it. Okay, thirdly, the disposition of the will in the state of grace and glory. There's a lot to say here, but time prevents us, because like I said, I want to end with some practical things, but and which is the sole reason that I am combining here the state of man in grace and in glory. We can say that what sin has corrupted, grace renews and glory perfects. Before man can be converted to God in saving knowledge and love, it is entirely necessary that a new habit of faith and love toward God and every spiritual good be supernaturally infused in the intellect and the will, respectively. That is, to make us willing in the day of salvation, in the day of his power, Psalm 110. And this takes place in regeneration. It takes place in the new birth, in the... um, monergistic work of God in which the will of man is passive, passive in receiving the new spiritual principle of life out of which man freely brings forth spiritual acts of faith and love toward God. Regeneration is not the effect of our faith in God. Rather, it is the efficient cause of our faith in God irresistibly and sovereignly wrought by God. Just as original sin is bestowed upon all by virtue of the one unrighteous act of Adam as covenant head of mankind, we can say that the renewal of man in original righteousness is sovereignly bestowed upon us by virtue of the one righteous act of Christ as the covenant head of the elect. 
4, as Paul says in Romans 5, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. And just as the gift of original righteousness is, is prior to actual righteousness, the supernatural gift of regeneration, the habitual renewal of both the intellect and the will as it regards the gift of faith and charity must be prior to the actual exercise of faith, of justifying faith, which is man's free choice irresistibly arising out of that new spiritual principle of life within him to trust in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ as their own. Justifying faith is an act of man's free choice as the Spirit of God most powerfully inclines the intellect with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and inclines the will by means, effectually inclines the will by means of that love whereby the Spirit himself is poured out into our hearts. And the precise manner in which we have described free choice as a joint act of intellect and will, it helps to explain for us why the Reformed have consistently maintained that the habit of faith, inasmuch as it includes the notion of trust, fiducia, is simultaneously in both the intellect and the will. Justifying faith, which invariably works itself out in sanctification and the actual pursuit of holy acts through love. Free will in the state of grace is not, however, a simple return to the state of innocence. There are, two, there are at least two notable differences here. First, although the will in both states is able to sin and not able to sin, or able to sin and able not to sin, there is now a remaining principle of sin within the Christian, this side of glory, that was not in our first parents. And so temptations now arise, not only externally, but also internally. And old habits need to be continually mortified by the actual exercise of faith and love. I'll speak a little bit more about, a little more about that in a minute. Second, Whereas our first parents were not yet confirmed in a state of righteousness, much less of sin, in their state of integrity, the Christian, notwithstanding his remaining ability to sin and that, that law still within the member, his members, is now judicially confirmed in a state of grace and is in no way under the same sort of probation or really and truly liable to falling from that state of grace. Just as Adam was under obligation to settle his character, the Christian, you could say in one manner of speaking, has done this very thing the moment he is actually trusted in Christ. But much more to the point, the faith which now justifies is a faith that trusts not in oneself or in even one's own choice or act of faith. It's not faith in faith. The faith that justifies 
is a faith that trusts and, and in and rests upon the settled character and righteousness of another, by which the, the very preservation of that faith has been purchased and confirmed. Glory, then perfects the freedom of the will to choose holiness so that the will is most free when it is free to good alone, unable to sin. In glory, not only will the remaining principle of sin be entirely removed, and not only will every external temptation be removed, the intellect will be most perfectly illuminated not only to see clearly every particular good, but to see goodness itself, to see God himself. Faith will be perfected in sight so that God himself will be immediately apprehended by the intellect and possessed by the will as the soul's chief end and happiness to be loved above all else and all else enjoyed for his sake as the, as the controlling reason for why and in what way anything else should be desired. This was the perfection that was held out to Adam in the tree of life, willfully forfeited by man's sin and sovereignly recovered by God's grace but it will be eternally perfected in the state of glory. To God alone be the glory. Now I'd like you to consider with me <clears throat> as we bring this to a close, some practical considerations. <clears throat> Obviously there's more that can be said than what we have said but I thought it useful to conclude with two practical considerations that arise out of the accumulation of the things that we have said. So two practical considerations that bear upon our present, our present experience as Christians in the state of grace. The first consideration is aimed at helping us understand what is happening when we find ourselves sinning against our better judgment, so to speak. Sinning which perhaps by its redundant, sinning perhaps is always against our better judgment, but at any rate, sinning against our better judgment. I'm thinking here of the experience that Paul describes in Romans 7. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. Okay, before we comment on that directly, consider what we have said so far. We said that the will is naturally ordered to our own happiness, as, at least as we perceive it as, it, as it is related to goodness in general. Whereas free will chooses between particular things insofar as they are perceived to be good in some way and, and therefore desirable means unto our happiness. We may add to this that even when we choose evil, 
We do not choose it because it is evil per se, but because we perceive that we perceive that thing under some aspect of goodness, right? It'll, it'll bring us pleasure or something like that. It'll, um, doing this thing will avoid persecution. It'll avoid pain or something of that sort. So that scripture may even speak of the deceitful pleasures of sin. We've also said that free choice is a joint act of the intellect and the will, wherein the choice of the will is always determined by the last judgment of the practical intellect. But also the last judgment of the practical intellect is itself simultaneously determined to be its last judgment when the will puts an end to its deliberation and is satisfied with the reasoning in support of a particular outcome or action. And so what we will or choose can always be traced back to what we are thinking. And so it was also said that we need to train our intellect, right? Uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, renewing of the mind to train our intellect to inform and influence according to the word of God to influence in a certain respect even determine what the will chooses. But now I want to analyze Romans 7, the Romans 7 phenomenon that, <clears throat> however you interpret this, of, as, uh, uh, in terms of Paul, is this the, the Christian life or is this before conversion? I, I, think, I think that we can say that, that there's something here that, however you interpret it, there is something here that every Christian has experienced wherein the will sometimes chooses against reason's better judgment. In fact, so much so that we might even say that it acts contrary to reason. You know what, what you ought to do, but you freely choose to do otherwise. So what is happening in that moment? The voluntarist would say that the will is simply disregarding the last judgment of the practical intellect and acting independently of its own reasoning, of, of the intellect's reasoning. But we have said that although the will always follows the last judgment of the practical intellect, it does not do so passively, but in a certain respect determines where the intellect shall finally rest. There are times when we experience another law, Paul says, a remaining principle of sin working in our members, wherein for whatever combination of reasons, the will wants what the will wants. So it commands the intellect to, let's say, resume deliberation, to even at times find a, a rationale, or in the case of sin, a rationalization for what it wants. Listen to Edward Fazer. And think here in terms of just the overall interrelationship of the, of the intellect and of the will. He says, if you really want to believe in some idea, you might reinforce your confidence in it 
by focusing your attention on evidence that seems to support it and not letting yourself dwell on evidence against it. And these are acts of the will. You can also avoid dwelling on the fact that you are engaging in such intellectual dishonesty to the point where you forget that you have done it. The emotional appeal of an idea and or the painfulness of the thought of its being false can facilitate the will's resort to such self-deception insofar as they can distract the intellect from seeing the truth. He says, rationalization, so-called precisely, because the intellect needs to see reasons for something before the will can lock onto it, even if what that means is that we are sometimes coming up with reasons not to consider reasons. Is this your experience or just mine? Maybe it's just mine. But if I'm not mistaken, it seems like maybe it was Paul's as well. The will never acts without reason, even when it willfully acts contrary to the better part of reason. And that is what we are doing when we rationalize, when we justify ourselves, and when we suppress our conscience. We've been exhorted to strengthen our intellectual habits and virtues with the truth of God's word in order to inform and, and direct our will and our desires, and rightly so. But I want to add to this an observation that Sometimes we know what is right and true and will to rationalize our way into doing otherwise. And this teaches us another lesson. That just as sin arises from wrong thinking, wrong thinking can willfully arise from the will's own moral weakness to fix and command the intellect to fix upon those motives and reasonings that would effectually or effectively move and persuade the will to choose what it ought to choose. And this leads to the second practical consideration. You could say it's really just all one practical consideration. And it's this, that just as much as we need to exercise and strengthen our intellectual virtues, our knowledge of God's, of God and of his word, we need to exercise and strengthen the moral virtues of the will as well. And we do this by choosing to establish, for instance, to establish spiritual routines and disciplines in our lives, such as fasting, that help us to practice, uh, and other things that help us to practice self-denial, help us to practice the exer and exercise greater dependence upon the Lord and to strengthen our fortitude and our temperance and our courage and to help us to reorder our affections chiefly to God. To this, we can add even every opportunity to more regularly and faithfully commit ourselves to those things that, that seek to stir up our love and good works, and not only ours, but our brethren. 
Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Well, I appreciate your willingness to be here, your uh, moral fortitude uh, to stick it out to the end, and I pray that it's been to your edification. Amen.